all my dear listeners, and welcome to Season 2 of Counter Melody. It is I, your host, Daniel Gundlach, and once again I'm eager to delve into the world of song with you. I'm devoted to bringing you the voices of beloved artists, often focusing on unexpected facets of their artistry. In addition, I look forward to presenting less celebrated but equally treasurable singers who also deserve our attention and respect. Since I started this podcast, I've learned even more about the topic to which I have devoted my life, and I'm honored to have you join me on this ongoing mutual journey of discovery. Let's get down to today's business. Great singers and great singing. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Counter Melody. I'm afraid I'm going to be presenting you with another episode of my Music for a World in Crisis series. Back in March, as the pandemic was just starting to hit and people were feeling so unsettled and uncertain about the way that things were going to unfold, I did several of these. And now, all these months later, we find ourselves with a new resurgence of cases all over the world. Here in Germany, things are not looking good. David and I would not at all be surprised if we were to see another lockdown in the very, very near future. Music can be an enormous comfort in times like this, even as in most of the world, theaters and performance venues are non-operational. Given this situation, I have decided that the best music that I can present to you today is Richard Strauss's Vier Letzte Lieder, or The Four Last Songs. There are so many amazing versions of this, I hesitate to call it a cycle, it's a series of songs that were grouped together and published after Strauss's death. In fact, the world premiere also took place the year after Strauss died, and in that case, the performer was none other than the great Norwegian dramatics Fano Kirsten Flatstad, and the Philharmonia Orchestra was conducted by Wilhelm Furtwängler. 
I have so many favorite versions of these songs that I have had no choice but to plan two distinct episodes. The first will include eight different sopranos, each one singing one of the songs. So in other words, we'll have two performances of the complete group of songs, each one with four different singers. I'll also supplement that with some additional Strauss material. In a second episode for my Patreon subscribers, I will feature 12 singers, each singing one of the four songs to form three complete performances of the series of songs. Right now, we are hearing an excerpt from the final scene of a 1964 live performance of Strauss's bucolic tragedy, Daphne. We're hearing Karl Böhm conducting the Wiener Symphonica and the magnificent soprano Hilde Güden doing a wordless vocalise as Daphne is transformed into a tree. Rossini said regarding Wagner that he has beautiful moments, but dreadful quarters of an hour. Monsieur Wagner a de beaux moments, mais de mauvais quarts d'heure. Rossini never actually wrote those words down, but he is quoted by several writers as having said this. I think that one can say the same thing of Richard Strauss. There's so much beautiful music, but for the most part, every single one of his operas, with the exception of one, has an awful lot of note spinning. I'm going to start today with an example of one of those beautiful moments that sits in the midst of an opera that is primarily note spinning. That was the penultimate collaboration between Strauss and his librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal, 1928's Die Ägyptische Helena. The second act opens with one of Strauss's most ecstatic utterances. It's called the Zweite Brautnacht, or Helen's Awakening Scene. Many of your favorite singers have sung this scene. Some have even sung the complete opera. Not so many, but a few. 
but I am going to offer you a recording from 1928, recorded shortly after the premiere. Rosa Pauli, the great Hungarian-born Jewish soprano, singing the scene with Fritz Busch, the distinguished conductor whom we will encounter again later in the episode. The title role of Helena was written for the great soprano Maria Jerica, but the Zimpe Opa in Dresden would not pay her enormous requested fee, and so the role was created by Elisabeth Rettberg. Rettberg only sang the premiere. Following that, Rosa Pauli sang all further performances, and she coached the role with Richard Strauss himself. Pauli conquers this music like no other singer has ever done before or since. She has evenness throughout her range. She has an incredible top. She has a very strong lower register, which is not the case with some people that sing this part or this scene. Bush has an incredible sense of how to pace Strauss. This is the most exciting version that I know of the Zweite Brautnacht. It absolutely explodes, which is exactly what it should do.
other role for which Rosa Pauli was particularly famous was the title role in Elektra. And I said earlier that all of Strauss's operas, except for one, contain a good deal of note spinning. That opera is Elektra, which I am convinced is his complete and utter masterpiece. It went in a direction which he backed away from in future work. It's so radical. It's so violent. It's so compact. It's an astonishing, astonishing opera. Even with a piece that explosive and, as I say, violent, there are moments of extreme lyrical beauty. And the primary one among these is the so-called recognition scene when Electra encounters her brother Orest, whom she has not seen in many, many years, and at first does not recognize him. And when she does realize that it is he, she lets off this primal scream and then proceeds to sing a beautiful lyrical passage. One singer that I have not spent enough time on in this podcast is the great mezzo-slash-soprano Krista Ludwig, who is still with us, moving through her 90s. One of my devoted listeners recently posted on Facebook a letter that was written by Leonard Bernstein toward the end of his life in March 1990 regarding Krista Ludwig. I couldn't say it better than he does. Let me read the letter to you. I always thought Christa Ludwig the greatest Brahms singer among her peers, but that was only until I heard her sing Strauss. Then she was the greatest Marshallin, until I heard her do Mahler. Again, I had to reassign her to another throne. But then I heard her sing Wagner, and the same thing happened. And when recently I heard her incredible interpretation of the old lady in my operetta Candide, then I had to give up. She is simply the best and the best of all possible human beings. Christa Ludwig took on many soprano roles, including the Marschallin, as Bernstein mentioned, the Dyer's Wife, the Färberin in Frauen Schatten, Leonore in Fidelio, and several others, including a less-than-successful Ariadne, of which a quite decent live recording exists. She did not ever sing the title role of Electra, although later in her career she did sing the mother Clutemnestra, and brilliantly so. This is a 1964 recording with her then-husband, the bass baritone Walter Berry, who's frankly another favorite singer of mine. So many of them today. Heinrich Holreiser is conducting the orchestra of the Deutsche Oper Berlin in this 1964 excerpt from the recognition scene. Christa Ludwig's one stab at music from the title role of Elektra. Sie sind wir 
Sie haben nicht geschlagen.
Before we jump in to the Fierletzte Lieder themselves, let's listen to this performance of the very last work that Strauss completed. That is the song Malven. He wrote it for Maria Jerica. After her death, it was found among her effects and auctioned off, where it was bought by none other than the quote-unquote non-political Koch brother, He then provided the manuscript for its world premiere performance in January 1985 by Kiri Kanawa and Martin Katz at the conclusion of a New York Philharmonic concert. That very performance of Malven is what we're going to hear next. As you can hear, it's a pretty lightweight piece. I hear it harking back more to the Brentano leader than it does to the Fierletzte leader, which are a little bit more substantial, both by nature of the poem set and because they're also orchestral settings. Thank you. 
I could certainly go into an in-depth assessment of the life and career of Richard Strauss, but that is beyond the scope of this podcast, I think. For those who want to know more, there's certainly a lot of material. The question persists, of course, is if he was a Nazi or if he wasn't a Nazi, and I don't think the question is all that easily answered. That is true of a number of the artists that we are encountering on today's episode, including the conductors Wilhelm Furtwängler and Karl Böhm. I think in Karl Böhm's case it's more cut and dried. Also in the case of Kirsten Flagstad, I think history has exonerated her for the most part, but certainly she was subject to a great deal of scorn after the war, and she had to work very hard to reestablish her reputation and to clear her name. In the case of Richard Strauss, I think we can agree that he was a political naive who wanted to simply exist in Germany as things were unfolding under the Third Reich, and he made some very foolish choices. But as with many artists who were trying to exist in the time of the Third Reich, I think Strauss withdrew so that he could continue to produce music away from the chaos and horror of what was unfolding in Germany. One thing that we can say about Strauss's late music is that he strove for a different kind of autumnal, almost refulgent, very nostalgic form of expression. This happens in so many of his late works. The Metamorphosen for 23 solo string instruments, which really is a eulogy for German culture. Parts of the opera Die Schweigsame Frau, his penultimate opera Die Liebe der Danae, also the final scene of Capriccio, and the setting of Daphne, with which we began the episode. Speaking of that opening excerpt, which featured the Viennese soprano Hildegüden, I'm sorry to say that Hildegüden doesn't appear to have ever undertaken the four last songs. Of course, the whole question arises of what kind of voice was intended for these pieces. One knows that Strauss specifically asked Kirsten Flagstad to sing the premiere of these pieces. This is an issue that I will address further as we get into the performances of the eight different sopranos that we'll hear singing individual songs from the set. As we listen to this performance of another of Strauss's autumnal masterpieces, the Oboe Concerto, here played in its first recording by Leon Goosens and Alceo Galliera in 1947. I'm going to do my little Werbung, my little advertisement for fundraising. I mentioned that I have bonus episodes that I produce for my Patreon supporters, and this is true. No matter at what level you support the podcast, whether that be $2 or $2,000 a month, by offering that support you gain access to all of my bonus material. I have posted so far five bonus episodes for my listeners. And of course, that's not to forget the second Four Last Songs episode that will be dropping this coming week. 
just as a little foretaste. These are some of the singers that you'll hear. Susan Dunn, Gundula Janowitz, Julia Varady, Helen Donat, Katerina Ligenza, Heather Harper, Martina Arroyo, Lois Marshall, Montserrat Caballé, Hannelore Kuse, Ellie Ameling, and Kirsten Flagstad. It's a very special episode. You don't want to miss it. Please do pledge your support. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash countermelody. Also, please remember that I do produce a dedicated website, which includes show notes for every single episode, which you can find at countermelodypodcast.com. Frühling Im dämmerigen Grüften träumte ich lang von deinen Bäumen und blauen Lüften, von deinem Duft und Vogelsang. Nun liegst du erschlossen in Gleis und Zier, von Licht übergossen wie ein Wunder vor mir. Du kennst mich wieder, du lockst mich zart. Es zittert durch all meine Glieder deine selige Gegenwart. Spring In twilight crypts I long dreamed of your trees and blue breezes, of your fragrance and birdsong. Now you lie revealed before me in glorious adornment, doused with light like a miracle. Once again you recognize me. Gently you lure me, your blissful presence trembles through all my limbs. In my opinion, it is one of the great losses to recorded posterity that the extraordinary Welsh soprano Margaret Price did not do a commercial recording of these songs. However, we have at least six live performances, all of which are very different in their own way. She is, for me, the ideal Strauss soprano for these songs. Her voice has a coolness of timbre. It rides very easily over the orchestra. She has flexibility. She has a voice of size, but not weight, if you know what I mean. It's not thuddy sounding. It soars. And in this 1981 performance with Claudio Abbado and the Chicago Symphony, she sings the first of the songs, Frühling.
I have to say something about the order of the songs. They are published in the order Frühling, September, Beim Schlafengehen and Im Abendrot. But Karl Böhm's preferred performance order began with Beim Schlafengehen, then September, then Frühling, and then concluding with Im Abendrot, but again with a very different kind of tempo than one encounters in, say, the recording by Jesse Norman and Kurt Mazur. Many people feel that that is the supreme recording of the four last songs. It's not to my taste. I can understand those who enjoy it, but it's just not my taste for these songs. As I said, Margaret Price is my ideal for these. We are going to encounter many different vocal weights, um, many of my favorite singers, from Arlene Auger to Barbara Hendricks to Anneliese Rotenberger, sang these songs. I'm not including excerpts from any of their performances because in one way or another, I don't feel that they are ideal. All of these can be heard on YouTube, so if you want to hear some of your favorite singers that you're not hearing today, by all means, look them up. There is one singer, I kind of swore I would never speak her name on the podcast. We'll give her her code name, Betty Blackhead. And so many people feel that hers are the ultimate versions. I couldn't disagree more. I won't listen to her. I don't really want to think about her, so... Yeah, we'll leave it at that for now. For me, the best of the more recent recordings of the four last songs is that by the Finnish soprano Zoile Izokowski. Here she is conducted by the Deutsche Symphonie Orchestra under Marek Janowski. This is a very fleet version. It is one of the fastest versions that I know, yet Izokowski brings a wonderful lightness to it, and it's a very different feel than what we heard from Margaret Price. See what you think of this.
On the bonus episode, I will include a version from 1969 with Gundula Janowitz and Sergiu Celibidake, in which he takes a tempo that is almost twice as slow as the version that Isokowski and Janowski take. Janowitz is one of my favorite singers. It was really difficult for me to leave her out of this episode, but as I said, you can find her on the bonus episode. It's very interesting to examine the question of Strauss's text setting, particularly as regards the second song, September, the last of the four that Strauss composed. He demands melismatic vocal lines that simply cannot be sung without breaking up the line. It's possible that there's one singer out there, or maybe two, who have managed to do the prosody that Strauss has requested. But even so, it's interesting to compare the way that various singers handle, for instance, the final line of this song, Langsam tut er die müd gewordenen Augen zu. It's broken up in many different ways, some more effective than others, but all on some level sort of ingenious. The first version I'm going to offer you is a 1977 live performance from L.A. with the Polish soprano Teresa Szyliskara. I've already gone on record on the podcast asserting that hers is one of the most beautiful voices that I have ever heard, which of course renders her ideal for these songs. Zubin Mehta is conducting in this performance from November 1977. Another thing that I want to draw your attention to in this song in particular is the string writing that Strauss uses. In this case, strings are divided, and the effect that one hears, particularly at the beginning of the song, matches that of the final pages of the Daphne scene, which we heard at the beginning of the episode. It's also worth noting, of course, the use that Strauss makes of the horn, the beautiful solo at the end of the movement, and in general, lush, evocative orchestration. One remembers, of course, that Strauss was a master orchestrator, and you certainly hear this throughout the entire set of songs. September Der Garten trauert, kühl singt in die Blumen der Regen, der Sommer schauert still seinem Ende entgegen, golden tropft Blatt um Blatt nieder vom hohen Akazienbaum, Sommer lächelt erstaunt und matt in den sterbenden Gartentraum. Lange noch bei den Rosen bleibt er stehen, sehnt sich nach Ruh. Langsam tut er die müd gewordenen Augen zu. September The garden is in mourning. Rain sinks coolly into the leaves. Gently the summer shudders to its end. One by one, golden leaves fall from the tall acacia tree. Surprised and exhausted, summer smiles upon the garden's dying dream. Summer remains longer near the roses, longing for slumber. Slowly, he closes his tired eyes.
another of my most treasured singers of all time is the Swedish soprano Elisabeth Söderström. I've already done a needle drop episode on her back in January, and we are so lucky to have her in several different live recordings of the Fiolette Lida, as well as a studio recording that she did in, I want to say, the early 80s, 1981 perhaps. Her voice has a frailty to it that I've remarked on before, and I am deeply moved by her evocation of the garden in its final throes of life as September draws to a close. In this live 1977 performance, she is accompanied by Bernard Heitink and the Konzertgebau Orchestra.
I'm probably not alone in finding the next song beim Schlafengehen to be the most profoundly affecting of the set. One has to have a voice that soars for these songs to make their proper effect. And by the way, I find the text of all three of the first songs by Hermann Hesse to be so profoundly evocative of nature, death, desire, longing, transcendence. I first discovered these songs on a recording by Leontine Price from the early 70s. It's no longer my go-to version, but I'll tell you, when I was 15 years old, I played it every night when I went to bed. I was a very depressed kid, uncertain if I would even make it through high school, honestly. And these songs, especially the third one, promised the possibility of a life that went beyond the pain of daily existence. I'm going to offer two versions of this song today. The first one goes against what I just said a few minutes ago, that one has to have a voice of extreme beauty to sing these songs effectively. Here's a singer that kind of puts the lie to it, but in a most interesting way. I'm talking about the German soprano Edda Moser, who gave this live performance in Vienna on October 1st, 1974. It's interesting, by the way, that so many of these live performances take place in the fall, because this really is music for that season in particular. Also, the affect that's required is a real Apollonian one. I don't think one can throw oneself into these songs with enormous passion. They require a certain distance, and Moser achieves this astonishing connection to the text at the same time that her voice, not always a well-behaved instrument soars with incredible beauty over the orchestra. Beim Schlafengehen Nun der Tag mich müd gemacht, soll mein sehnliches Verlangen freundlich die gestirnte Nacht wie ein müdes Kind empfangen. Hände lasst von allem tun, Stirn vergisst du alles Denken, alle meine Sinne nun wollen sich im Schlummer senken, und die Seele unbewacht will in freien Flügen schweben, um im Zauberkreis der Nacht tief und tausendfach zu leben. At bedtime. The day has exhausted me. Now my most passionate desires will, like a tired child, be kindly enveloped by the starry night. Hands, stop all of your activities. Head, let go of all your thoughts. Now all my senses long to sink into slumber. And the unguarded soul wants to soar on free wings into the enchanted circle of the night, deeply and thousandfold there to live.
course, a highlight to this song is the instrumental interlude for violin. And in this performance from October 1977, with Lucia Pop and Georg Scholte conducting the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, this song receives perhaps the most transcendent rendition it's ever received.
Lutra Pop died in November 1993, four days after her 54th birthday. She had brain cancer. It was merely one of an inestimable series of losses that year. For opera lovers, we lost Tatiana Troianos, we lost Arlene Auger, and we lost Lucia Pop. One of her very last recordings was with Michael Tilson Thomas and the London Symphony. She re-recorded the four last songs, the voice is no longer so fresh, but the interpretive insight from someone who already knew that she was dying is overwhelming. I really recommend looking that up. I'm not featuring it on the episode, but I just felt that that had to be said. Now let's move on to the last song, shall we? Im Abendrot has a text by Josef von Eichendorf, a poet from an earlier era than that of either Strauss or Hermann Hesse. It's the first of the set that Strauss composed. He had a devoted marriage with the soprano Pauline de Anna. She was known as rather a harridan, a not very nice person, a heckler, um, a henpecker. Most people did not really like her, but she and Strauss had an incredibly devoted marriage. As she was a soprano, I think she contributed significantly to Strauss's love of the soprano voice in particular. As you hear, this song describes a loving pair at the end of their lives, having just climbed up to the top of a height, looking down, seeing two larks soaring together through the twilight air. It's an incredibly moving portrait of a loving couple. I must say something here about the tempo of the version that we're about to hear. This is a 1976 live performance from Salzburg with the great Bulgarian soprano Anna Tomova Sintov with Karl Böhm conducting the Staatskapelle Dresden. One is used to a much broader tempo in these songs, but from his very first recorded version, Karl Böhm took a much faster tempo than one is used to. But it's funny because it actually creates a greater feeling of expanse, I think, than tempi that are simply too monolithic. With a tempo such as, forgive me, Court Mazur takes in the classic recording with Jesse Norman, I feel that the music grinds to a halt. I much prefer Karl Böhm's version, and as I say, his was one of two competing early recordings of the Fiolettes de Lieder back in 1953. His soprano was Lisa della Casa, the Swiss soprano who is a beautiful but somewhat problematic singer. I love her, for instance, in Arabella, but she's not my favorite soprano for the Fiolettes de Lieder. She has a habit. It's a way of not singing with a really bound and connected legato. And for these songs, it troubles me when I hear her lifting into every note. Tomo Vasintov has a much better sense of legato, and in 1976 she was very early on in her career and achieves a magnificent result, I think, with Karl Böhm. Im Abendrot Wir sind durch Not und Freude gegangen, Hand im Hand. Vom Wandern ruhen wir nun überm stillen Land. Ring sich die Täler neigen, es dunkelt schon die Luft, zwei Lerchen nur noch steigen nachträumend in den Duft. Tritt her und lass sie schwirren, bald ist es Schlafenszeit, 
dass wir uns nicht verirren in dieser Einsamkeit. O weiter stiller Friede, so tief im Abendrot, wie sind wir wandermüde, ist dies etwa der Tod? At Twilight We have passed through joy and hardship together, hand in hand. Now we tarry from our wanderings above the silent land. Around us the valleys lean in, already the air is darkening. Only two larks still rise dreamily into the scented air. Leave them to their twittering. Come here, it's almost time to sleep. Let's not lose our way in this enormous solitude. O oh, vast, silent peace, so deep in twilight, we are weary of wandering. Could this possibly be death? <laughs>
Well, my friends, we've arrived at the last of the performances for today by the Croatian soprano Shena Jurinac, one of the most criminally under-recorded great singers of all time. This live performance from Stockholm in 1951 emerged only decades later and caused enormous excitement when it was finally released. The conductor here is none other than Fritz Busch, who we heard conducting Rosa Pauli in the 1928 recording from Egyptische Helena. Busch was at the end of his life. Jurinatz is in her absolute prime here. In some ways, this is the definitive recording of the song but particularly, I want you to listen to the way in which she intones the words at the end, Is dies etwa der Tod?
My friends, if you are a US citizen and you haven't yet voted, make a plan to do so. No matter who is finally elected, it will be a difficult road ahead for our country, but in one case, we at least have the possibility of remaining a democracy. The stakes are high. Please make a sensible decision as you cast your ballot. Thank you. Please join me next week when I will give a pre-election day episode that features the great Paul Robeson. Until then, my dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.